This is Shifron Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. We're back. We're back. It's, uh, well, quarter one still, just <laughs> maybe it'll be Q2 2012. Quarter? Oh, right, OK, like a financial quarter. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's do quarterly ones. That's <laughs> probably just about achievable. Um, yeah, we've done two so far this year. Wow, we're churning them out. Um, we did uh, the John Ronson one over Christmas. That was and funny. Then, yeah, yeah, it was really long and took us ages. <laughs> it was a two-hour <laughs> Christmas extravaganza. Yeah, so that I, I sort of think that counts for four episodes. And then we did, um, and then we did Ed Jeffries. Yeah, who that was, was good. The, as well. um, yeah, he was funny. Chippen's paste impersonator on Twitter. And now here we are again, with possibly with a guest, possibly with, without one. We'll see what Who happens. Knows? Yeah, you'll just have to wait and see. Stay tuned in. Hey, don't tune out <laughs> don't, into another podcast. Don't do that. On your special podcast radio. We've uh, had some questions in off the internet, Lola. We have. We were we were a bit um, uncertain of what to talk about tonight because we don't really have anything in common. Um, <laughs> we, we do, of course. We've but just we been wanted to... bitching about agency life. We have actually. We can't. We, we don't have anything in common that we can talk about to the public. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Social awkwardness aside. <laughs> yeah. So we've appealed to you, the listeners, um, on Twitter to uh, to give us some ideas, and you've come up you've come up trumps. I have to say. Specifically, did you ask for questions? Did you say um, no? Have you got any questions, or did you just no, say what should just, we talk about? They just threw questions. I, I just said what? Yeah, I think I just said what should we talk about? And they've all come back with sort of surreal rhetorical questions. <laughs> <laughs> Kim Plowright, a.k.a. at Mildly Diverting. Do you pronounce the at when you're saying a Twitter handle? Mm, it sounds yeah, a bit twatty, doesn't probably it? Probably not, yeah. Ah. <laughs> Kim Plowright, a.k.a. Mildly Diverting, uh, asks, is Lego as good as it used to be? Is Lego as... Well, you're, you're the expert. Do you think it's better or less good? It's certainly evolved a lot, hasn't it, in recent years? It's as good, Okay. I would say. It's always yeah. been pretty good. It's good in different ways. Yeah. Right. What would have to happen for you to say that Lego wasn't as good as it has been? Um, for Lego to go down in your estimation, because I don't know anyone who likes Lego more than you, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just wondering if that if that affection is sort of exclusive of anything that Lego ever do. Well, you? yeah, I suppose it, it depends what you want from Lego. I mean, Kim doesn't say does is is the new Lego that you can buy now as good as it used to be. Like the Lego I've got in my room is still just as good as when I bought it. So in, in that regard, Lego's brilliant. Lego degraded over the last eight years. Sometimes the white ones go a bit yellow. Yeah, I don't think that's what she's getting at, no. to be honest. Well, the new sets, um, to be honest, the Friends theme is pretty much offensive. Friends, the comedy show? No, that would be good. No, <laughs> um, what be they called? brilliant. It's Friends as in... Um, friends! Oh, let's, let's make a cake. It's, it's girls. It's the oh, pink, it's yeah, the pink so set. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. It's like the modern Belleville or um, Paradiso or whatever, those nasty, ugh, unpleasant, everything's... Mm. Like Sylvanian families? Yeah. Right, OK. Yeah, it's not nice. good. Don't, but don't suede, buy that. Little suede badges and stuff. <laughs> 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 they're still plastic. Um, and now their hair is interchangeable with, with regular minifigs. But they've got minifigs that look like little pubescent girls with bulging mini breasts. No! It's not good. Yeah. Can you can you clip things onto the breasts? No. <laughs> they like little little circles, like the tops of the Lego man's head. Little bra that you clip on, a training bra. No, they're they're um, 
All of the Friends themes seem to be around cooking and mm. making your house nice. Oh, and Oh, dear, not good. So that sort of Lego is not very good. Right. But just don't buy that, you know. Okay, yeah. There's still plenty of Lego to enjoy. Yeah, buy Star Wars Lego. Star Wars right. Lego is going to be brilliant for is a long it, time. Is it too expensive? Not for me. Right. <laughs> for a child, say. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Should they suddenly become interested in Lego for some reason? But it was never dirt cheap for the equivalent of today's £6. You could probably get like a little flying thing or a little thing with four wheels, but yeah, it was never dirt cheap. Okay. Next question uh, again from Kim. What's wrong with the internet fridge, Kim? There is a lot wrong with the internet fridge. Internet fridges, which is this idea that in the future, in the near future, your mm. fridge will be connected to the internet ah. and will know what you've put in it and will be able to do your shopping for you. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard about that. Pretty much every big tech organisation that needs to feel like it's trendy and ahead of the curve and making futuristic stuff mm. just as a default position, just says, oh, we're going to make this internet fridge. So every year at CES, a company will announce one, normally two or three, actually. Mm. Um, This year, I think Samsung did a a fairly big splash around internet fridges. And it's a bit of a cliche now. So I have a blog. I have a fuckyearinternetfridge.tumblr.com, which I would encourage you all to have a look at. When she said internet fridge, I was thinking those little cardboard um, animals that you put in the fridge, and they talk to you in Japanese when you leave the fridge open. Do you know what they're called? No. All the cool people have got them. It's like a shuki or something. It's, it's, bound it's some to be. kind of cool name like that. Yeah. Um, I believe um, our superfan Revdan Cat has one. Ah. It um, has arrived through the post. Yeah, it's one of his. One of his things orders. that have arrived through the post. Yeah. But um, I think everyone who's got one of those is about one or two steps up the cool ranking from me. Right. Which actually would put them about where you are, and you, you don't have one, so maybe <laughs> maybe three steps up. No, I think, um, yeah, I don't think I'm anywhere on the cool ladder. But I think <laughs> we should we should appeal to um, our listeners if they have one of these animal things and they want us to try and get it into a fridge and record some sort of sound of it. Listeners, if you have um, one of these cardboard cube animal things that you put in the fridge and it talks to you in Japanese if you leave the fridge open... Please record the sound of it talking to you and, and telling you off and yes. send it in. I've, ne- I've, it I've seen pictures, but I've never heard no. what they sound like. <gasps> That's the send it in. How do you say your name, Mr. Dr. Upton, inventor yeah. of the Raspberry Pi? You know, there's the famous Linus clip. The, my, uh, this is my name is I, Linus. Most Torvalds, and I pronounce Linux Linux. Linux. Yep. Yes, they, okay, so my, my name is Evan Upton, and I pronounce my name Evan Upton. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Shift and Stop. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And as you know, we're, we're fairly occasional these days. We only go on the air when there's something interesting to talk about. And uh, I think the launch of the Raspberry Pi is mm. probably a fairly interesting thing to talk about. Can you tell us what the Raspberry Pi is, for in, case, in case any <laughs> listeners haven't heard of it? I'm sure they all have. Okay, so the Raspberry Pi is a, it's a credit card-sized uh, PC. It's a credit card-sized Linux PC. We're just holding one now. Which I'm just, I'm just holding in my hands. Imagine, if you will, me holding a thing exactly the size of a credit card in my hands. Um, it's, at the moment, it's a bare board, uh, and it's designed to plug into your television, into a USB mouse and keyboard, and an SD card for storage. Uh, and yeah, these things are $25 without networking or $35 with. And can people get hold of them now? Because there have been a few bumps along the way. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think people are currently quoting kind of delivery times. There's a large backlog now. These things have been available to order for about six weeks. There's a giant backlog. Uh, so I suspect if you order today, you might get yours in uh, May or June. So we've had that. You, you say there've been some bumps. There've been several bumps along the way. <laughs> um, I guess the most recent bump we had an issue with CE marking. So we discovered very late in the day that we had to get uh, European Union CE mark or in the US FCC 
mm-hmm. um, uh, so approval. Is that to do with emissions? Uh, yeah, so it's emissions and immunity. So we had to demonstrate that our radiated emissions across a range from about 30 megahertz to 6 gigahertz were in spec um, conductive emissions. So we had to check that we weren't um, blasting stuff out onto the Ethernet, um, onto the Ethernet port. Um, and uh, we also had to demonstrate immunity. So we had to demonstrate that you could blast us with radio waves sort of 40 dB larger than what we produce uh, and, and that we would survive and we do survive but yeah last week was a stressful week obviously because you know we've built many thousands of these uh, if they hadn't passed CE marking we would have had some challenges disposing of those and of course there would have been a big delay for, uh, for customers while, uh, while we figured out how to, how to fix the problem so. so a massive relief for you we got away with it <laughs> yeah and how long did that whole process take um, CE marking remarkably quick we, we got through that in a week um, so through the testing component, we're still waiting for our CE paperwork. Um, but we got through the uh, the testing process in yeah in a week. We had people working on uh, our, our test consultants in South Wales were working on Good Friday. They worked all the way through Good Friday to finish it off. But uh, yeah, all done. So uh, good news. The way you introduced Raspberry Pi at the beginning, you talked about it being a small, cheap computer. Mm-hmm. But actually, the foundation, the Raspberry Pi Foundation, which you formed. Um, has a charitable aim, doesn't it? There, there's a, um, an honourable goal behind this, <laughs> other than just making some nice money as well. Uh, yeah, so we are. So yeah, we're a not for. So we're incorporated as a not for profit. Mm-hmm. So we are a. Um, we're a. We're a, a limited company, but we're registered with the Charities Commission, and we have a, a set of articles, memoranda, and articles of association that uh, prevent us from extracting any money from the organisation. So let's, let's just be really clear about that, because I know a lot of people, there's, we'll probably come on to conspiracy theories later, but I know a lot of people will be confused about what different sorts of charities and limited companies can and can't do. A great way of being a not-for-profit is for all of the directors to extract as much money as, as they possibly can and walk away with it. You're saying that's not going to happen. Uh, I don't believe I'm able to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I, we, certainly, we certainly paid quite a lot of money to lawyers to make sure that we had our amendment arts that prevented us from doing that. So, for example, uh, our trustees can't be employees of the company would be one really one obvious way you could try and extract money, um, and we can't do that. There are two ways you can set up a charity, right? You can have a charity which is effectively a, a partnership, Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have a charity which is a uh, company, a legal entity, which has been turned into a charity and whose behaviour is constrained so that you can't extract value from it. Uh, and uh, they're fairly strict on this. Okay. So we, we, I would say until November of last year, it was the single largest expense we'd incurred as a, as a foundation, the, the lawyer's bills, to, to set that up. So you're not going to be making personally money from this, uh, from this venture? This isn't a money-making scheme? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, I have a day job. All of us have day jobs. So uh, we, we, have, we now have one employee. Um, but uh, um, and my wife has been working um, unpaid full time for us since about June of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have an actual paid employee now. But uh, yeah, we all have day jobs. None of us need to make money out of this. It's been very helpful to us in our relationships with our suppliers and our licensees that people can perceive that we aren't in this for our own gain. So people have been prepared to help us out because they've had confidence that they're not lining my, they're not feathering my nest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are actually genuinely helping the project. What are the goals of the project? What does it hope to do? Uh, so this was something. This is something that had its origins, I guess, in the end of my time at the computer lab in Cambridge, uh, where I was, I was doing my PhD and I was interviewing six, 17, uh, 16 and 17-year-olds who wanted to come to the university. And every year there were fewer of them, and every year the things they knew how to do were less impressive. You know, you went from having a 
being oversubscribed six to one, maybe, having pretty much everyone be an assembly language programmer, mm. to uh, being oversubscribed three to one and having everyone has written a web page. You know, I mean, these are still really bright kids, right? I mean, they're not, they're not stupid. They're just, um, they just haven't had the opportunity to, yeah. to learn to do really impressive stuff with computers. An example, one of the guys in my year at St. John's, and he was not unusual, this guy called Alex Evans, uh, who went on to found a company called Media Molecule, who uh, produced Little Big Planet mm. and was then bought by Sony. Um, and in fact, he introduced me to my wife. Um, he is kind of my poster child for what my contemporaries were like. Uh, and, and that had largely gone away by, by the mid-2000s. And so we, we were looking around for reasons why, why this might have happened. And the thing that we, that we happened on was that um, there wasn't programmable hardware. Mm. So we'd gone from an era of ZX Spectrums and BBC Micros mm. to an era of games consoles and PCs. And games consoles obviously aren't programmable at all, kind of as part of the business model, they're not programmable. And um, PCs, they are programmable, but you have to, um, you have to want to program them. Mm. There's an energy barrier. Mm. And so this kind of Raspberry Pi was about, can we produce a, a device in the various iterations of Raspberry Pi over the last six years? Can we produce a device which is cheap enough that children can buy them with for pocket money or they can just be given to a whole class mm. um, and useful enough that you can do interesting things with them other than programming? Because that's kind of important to have a hook to draw people in, whether that's gaming or surfing the web or whatever. And programmable enough that, that people could you know, get some of that, some of those experiences that we had as kids. Mm. So on, on your experiences as a kid, um, we like old computers here because obviously we're called Shift Run Stop. <laughs> and obviously I saw you at the BBC Micro um, 30 years celebration <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, which was fantastic. You said in your, your talk there, I think, something along the lines of, I don't understand why everyone doesn't be, want to be an engineer because yeah. you just get to play with stuff all day. Is your, do you have like um, any kind of particularly strong memories of what was your first computer? My first machine was a BBC Micro Model A that had been upgraded to, kind of upgraded to a Model B. So that's an extra 16K of RAM. Um, and um, yeah, I had that for four years, I think from when I was 11 uh, to when I was, uh, I guess, 14 or 15. And yeah, I learned everything that I know about computers using that machine, uh, and I, which I bought myself with money that I saved up. And I think that there's kind of something important about that. There's something important about having, uh, you know, having to put something in. Uh, you know, if you're just given something, you know, something that's free is not of value to you. And I, I, I spent my 200, my 220 pounds and bought my what at the time was quite an elderly BBC Micro. Um, and yeah, I used to do a lot of a lot of stuff with it. Um, I mean, the anecdote, the anecdote that I like to tell about it is going out and buying a mouse for this thing to try and write a Windows system, because I wanted a Windows system, because I actually wanted an Acorn Archimedes, and I couldn't afford one. I went and bought a mouse from, from, from Watford Electronics, and it arrived in a box, and it was just a mouse on its own. And you, were, you were quite young then. I was, I was like 12. Yeah. And, and this mouse arrives, and it's just a mouse with a cable. And that's it. And you plug it into your BBC Micro, and obviously nothing happens. <laughs> what, what sort of cable? I'm trying to remember my Micro. It was a user port. Okay. Uh, so, so I actually had to pay to have the user port added, because the user port was, was a, an 8-bit parallel uh, interfacing port that was right. missing from the, um, uh, from the Model A. Okay. And I had to go and pay a guy to solder an a, a, um, IDC header onto the board so I could plug this cable in. Plugged it in, nothing happened. I kind of knew nothing was going to happen, right? but I thought someone might have provided me with some software. <laughs> and these, these guys... Um, yeah, um, my father phoned them up to complain, and uh, the <laughs> the guy said uh, uh, if he can't write his own mouse driver, he doesn't deserve a mouse, <laughs> and 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 that was totally normal. Uh, I, I, that was you know I love, a lot of people my age have this this memory of, of just just computers being completely unapproachable, and you just get there. I mean, it's slightly more slightly more approachable than punch cards, but uh, you know still pretty unapproachable, uh, and having to roll your own stuff and having to roll your own stuff in the absence of the internet. 
So you couldn't just Google, oh, I want to run a mouse driver for my BBC. You know, you had to figure it out. Yeah. And you had to read your advanced user guide and figure it out. And did you? Yes. I, got a, I, the, I only got as far as moving a mouse cursor around the screen, but it was a really nice assembly language. This was my first experience around assembly language. Yeah. Um, and that was a perfectly plausible, you know, I think trading standards would feel that was a plausible thing to tell a 12-year-old, an aggrieved 12-year-old. Uh, and, and, and I think that we, we, we've fallen away from that. And, and to some extent, that's no bad thing, because it, what it means is computers are more useful now. You know, you don't have to write your own mouse driver. Uh, and, and, but on the flip side, what it means is that's great for 99% of the population and a total disaster for the 1% of us who work in engineering professions because it means that we don't have this pipeline. The pipeline has gone away. Um, and the problem with it being a pipeline is that the, the nasty thing with a pipeline is you can stop filling a pipeline and nothing immediately goes wrong. And that's what happened. So in the late 1990s, we stopped filling. We had about a 10-year pipeline. And we actually probably stopped filling it with eight-year-olds in the early to mid-1990s. And then we, we then saw that in 2005. Our emissions numbers fell off a cliff. And you don't really get, even get any warning because everything is just this cliff that moves, moves down the pipeline and, and kills you in the end. Because now you've got a generation that have grown up with yeah. Mega Drives rather than yeah, absolutely. Commodore 64. Absolutely. I think, yeah, if you put your finger on the 16-bit games consoles, is probably the point where the, where the, rot, where the rot set in. They had a price-performance advantage over 16-bit computers, which was really hard to overcome. So there were really compelling reasons to buy a Mega Drive and not an Amiga, say, or a, you know, a SNES or not an ST. Yeah. Um, but to the extent there, weren't re- there wasn't really a compelling reason to buy a, um, a, I don't know, an NES over a Spectrum. Yeah. Was that to do with scale? Was that to do with being able to make enough of them that it was cheaper to make, even though it was yeah. better hardware? Yeah. That it didn't need to be open, it didn't need to be programmable because it was a sealed box, it yeah. did one thing. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a mixture of scale, so there's a mixture of kind of global scale. So you know, um, uh, the, the 16-bit consoles were genuinely global pieces of hardware. And they were always, you know, uh, consoles have always, well, they've kind of always been quite global. And they've, they, that does give them an advantage over a Spectrum, which is a UK device. Mm. There is also, I think, probably the bigger factor is you can cut more corners with a sealed, like you say, with a sealed box, you can cut more corners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Mega Drive is a terrible piece of hardware. You know, it's really awful. It can, it can barely do anything, but what it can do is it can move sprites in the playfield around, mm-hmm. which is what you need in order to do cool games. And what, you know, it's basically the same thing a SNES can do. It can move sprites in the playfield around, and it can do that mode 7 floor effect, so you can write F0. Um, so, so if you're trying to compete against that with a general purpose computing Hard, um, architecture, you're always going to have a factor of something gap mm-hmm. between them. Uh, and it's only recently, I think, that you've been able to, to, to produce very, very cheap, very powerful general purpose computing hardware. And I think you know, ARM's got a lot of, got to bear a lot of the credit for that, mm-hmm. for, for giving us kind of, as we've got in this device, cores that you can use to build this very, very cheap hardware. Mm-hmm. What do you think the relationship is between your Raspberry Pi and Gaming? Do you, do you hope that kids will start trying to write games, or will there be games released for it? Uh, yeah, I, I really hope there's going to. I hope there are going to be games released for it. Mm. Um, we're talking to games publishers. I mean, my my first startup was a games publisher, mm. uh, and I um, very much hope that uh, that we'll get games companies interested. There are some in the hands of various game developers. David Braben, who's one of our trustees, mm. um, is a game developer. I, I would like to see commercial game content on this because I think it's a powerful way of hooking kids in, right? If you can have like a $25 games console that's got some really nice, recognizably modern commercial-grade games on it, that's a, that's a big pull. And we do need these hooks 
to get kids in to mm. get kids into using the platform. Because I mean, some people would say it's counterproductive to your goals of getting kids programming. But actually, when you think about the Spectrum and the Commodore sixty four, mm. I didn't buy it as a programming device. My C sixty four, I knew I could get cheap games for it. Yeah, mm. uh, absolutely. That kind of hook is really important. We need to, you know, obviously media playing is a big hook for this. This will do 1080p video. Um, games are another potential hook. And yeah, if, if, if 100 people buy this, buy this device and 90% of them use it just as a games device and a media player and 10 of them do a bit of programming and one of them gets really enthusiastic about programming, that's a fantastic yield. You know, that kind of attach rate for programming would be, a, would be a fantastic. You know, we've talked about uh, wanting another 1,000 engineers a year as our goal in the UK. Um, and that would be... Um, uh, I think you could achieve that if 1% of the people who bought it end up doing some programming. Yeah, 1,000 people a year. There are 3,500 secondary schools in Britain. So 1,000 people a year is one person in every, in every 3,500 schools in any given school year. You know, so it's actually a really kind of homeopathic concentration of people <laughs> we're trying to reach here to, to, to make a real difference, mm. you know, to, to kind of restart that idea that, that I could go and hire some 20-something-year-olds. It's very hard for me at the moment in my day job mm. to, to find people in their 20s, in their early 20s, to come and work for us. You know, recruitment mm. is largely about poaching, is largely about taking people from, from, from hiring experienced engineers rather than about bringing new people in. Mm. Hello, this is Simon out of Trevor Simon. This is Shift Run Stop. It's about, what, wait, hold on, what's it at the beginning? It's about games it's a fun podcast. Fun, fun podcast. About um, games and cultural stuff and interviews. Comedy. Comedy and interviews, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about stuff that we find interesting. Yeah, it's quite often it's got a theme of people who've got something a bit wrong with them. Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, think. yeah. Obsessives. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this is Quinn. <laughs> Hello, Quinn. Hi. <laughs> we are joined today by... Uh, by friend of nerds, Quinn Norton. Hi, Quinn. Hello. I am a friend of nerds. Uh, I'm a writer for Wired Magazine uh, and the Threat Level blog on Wired.com. Uh, I mostly cover Anonymous and Occupy. So I have many friends, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> Welcome to Shift and Stop. It's nice to be here. Let's eat. We could rebrand it. Let's snack. <laughs> League. Snack us. Well, actually, you know, I, I, I've decided to uh, avoid the sort of like normal glut of... Uh, post-Easter chocolates and I've brought along mostly it's a selection of uh, energy drinks Uh, excellent LucasAid is interesting as as a brand name because I I associate it with being ill yeah Uh, or hungover well, maybe not hungover, but my, my... We had this exact conversation. <laughs> yes. Well, we didn't, we didn't broadcast no. any of it. We didn't. Oh, sorry, sorry, carry on. <laughs> and so I thought I'd try again. I'll do it again. I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, no, I, I mean, when I was a, when I was a child, my, uh, my, it, was, it was sort of like a cure-all for, for sick children. I don't know whether there was an advertising campaign at the time or something, but for some reason, whenever I was, a, whenever I was ill, I, I guess it was my generation's version of Cowpole. Where it's you, the aid on the end. Possibly, that's possibly where it came from. But um, it, but it was it was a different kind of Lucasade. It was it was much thicker, and and it had this kind of odd packaging of this sort of like orange sort of like plastic cell sheet around the edge that always got sticky and 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 just kind of like horrific attracted wasps so, so this is absolutely like uh, the first time I dated a Brit I was kind of introduced to LucasAid as this kind of cure-all thing and I'm just looking at it going this is sugar water what is this supposed well, yes. to do for you yeah so if you like to try some uh, LucasAid Revive yes this one is uh, lightly sparkling lemongrass with ginger has it got caffeine in yeah uh, well let me check 
Uh, it's got vitamin B3 to fight fatigue. Oh, right. And caffeine to fight fatigue. <laughs> I don't know that this has got caffeine in it at all. No, it does have... It has caffeine naturally sourced from coffee beans. Right. So just in case you were worried that you were having, like, unnatural, artificial, lab-grown caffeine... <laughs> Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's like a sort of strong um, lemon and lime sort of flavour. It doesn't taste like LucasAid. It tastes like something that you might get from a health food shop. Yeah, it tastes like you're trying to make up for something. (laughs) I've got another one, which is uh, orange with... And I'm never really quite sure how to pronounce this. uh, I know it's a Portuguese word. Acai? I thought it was acai. It doesn't give me any more information about the berry, but I'm sure further information is available on Wikipedia. Oh, oh, it's oh, it's really orangey that one. Club mate. <laughs> I'm not or, sure. As about I that. like to say, club mate. Club it's, mate. It's mm. from yerba mate. It's a uh, it's a it's a German uh, it's a German energy drink, and uh, this seems to be the official drink of uh, hacker spaces. Yes, um, oh, really, I, and it's I picked, hideous. I picked up this bottle at the uh, the London Hacker Space in uh, in Hackney. I've actually written about this drink uh, while covering the Hope Conference in New York. Yikes. Even the company that makes it calls it an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a good sign. Is it alcoholic? Is it no. what it actually is? It it's just it an looks like drink. it should it looks, be. It looks like but, a bottle of beer. But no, God, that's foul. <laughs> yes. Oh. Oh. oh my god. <laughs> Why do they do it to what's, what's in it? It's actually based on a South American herb uh, called yerba mate, which has really high levels of caffeine in it. So, hence, very popular in uh, yes. hack so days. It's low and... sugar, it's high caffeine, it's, it's good for long hack sessions, I am informed. At that level, I think just take a freaking pill. I, I, I think two hundred milligrams of caffeine. I oh no, twenty milligrams of caffeine. I Goodness think it's me. it's it's possible that the taste explains why there were crates unopened of the stuff. Does it actually just taste of caffeine? I think Maybe that's the thing. <laughs> you know that caffeine taste. This is mainlining caffeine. Caffeine does have a taste, doesn't it? It's yeah, it's it's obscure. a bitter it's a bitter taste. But mm. this does taste a bit of mate inexpertly covered over with other flavors. Because <laughs> like you drink mate natively, you drink it out of a little container or gourd or something like that through a mm. straw that has a filter in it. So you just oh, right. leave all the mate in there. Okay. You put water on top of it, and then you shove this little kind of filter straw in it and drink it that way. And uh, the way you deal with uh, the yerba mate flavor at that point is through just piling sugar on top of the mate. <laughs> They've forgotten to do that, I think. Uh, That's yeah. the problem with this. <laughs> they tried to do other things besides piling sugar on top of it. So are you familiar with the Monster oh, yes. energy drinks? Very popular on um, uh, stickers, decals on cars and motorbikes right. around the south yes. of England. Before I was familiar with the brand, I just assumed that everything had been attacked by Wolverine. <laughs> Very dark, very murky. Oh, um, it looks like dehydrated. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It does. What I was yeah. yeah. It looks have like your go. doctor's going to have a word with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite tasty. It's not. Um, it's, it's not very fizzy, but it's yes, got a nice flavour to it. It's not fizzy at all. Oh. So this, this is what Jin's saying. This is this is an uncarbonated tea. Oh. It comes in a large with tin lemonade like beer can. and energy. Yeah. It looks like it ought to be mm. a sort of carbonated energy drink. It's confusing. You're making a TV program or a film, and you need to simulate urine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so from a very urine, dehydrated like, person. Urine, yeah, with, urine, with an infection. Yeah. <laughs> As an alternative to Lucasade, after a, a big night out. Mm. As a hangover cure, I can imagine that working quite nicely. I, I imagine, I imagine, if you were drunk and you bought it expecting it to be a carbonated drink, yeah. you would lose any faith you had in your own senses. <laughs> <laughs>
There's a question from Paul Gillibrand, Paulie a.k.a. G. Paulie G. He's my new pal. He, he left a really useful comment on my blog about Sheffield and where I could, should live and stuff. Oh, yeah? Um, so I think he's based in Sheffield, so extra, extra points for that. We should answer his question really well. Top man. Well, he asks a good question. He says, why do all cable-slash-satellite boxes have loads, in capitals, of exciting connectors and expansion ports on the back that cannot be used? <laughs> well, in capitals. I think he's angry. Yeah, I don't think he's angry with us, though. No, I think he's, he's angry relief. with the frustrating excitement. It's like sort of seeing a closed bakery or a sweet shop. You can't, you're not allowed anything. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know what all those extra, like, connections and stuff on the back are. Do you? I think they're so that Rupert Murdoch can control your house. <laughs> right. And therefore you shouldn't go too near them. Yeah, plug them up with, like, bits of chewing gum. Or, yeah. I don't know, uh, fireworks, yeah. <laughs> small, small flammable objects. Fill them in and then you won't be frustrated by them, just pretend they weren't there in yeah, the first place. pour petrol into them. Yeah. Um, Nation Studio say, uh, oh no, that's not one for us. Oh, that so was kind of in they, passing. That. Well, we that should read a, it though, because yeah. they describe us as a great digital media discussion podcast. Yeah. Which we're not. I don't, I, yeah, I did take issue on that. Um, well, I went on to say, well, I think what we mainly talk about is, like, ponies and Star Wars. Yeah. And they came back saying, well, that is digital media. Red Dwarf has not I been digital media stretch. quite a while. <laughs> that's a stretch. Yeah, that's true. The fact that I watch it on Love Film should not count. Something that can be on YouTube isn't necessarily just digital. <laughs> Although I did, yeah, I did find some quite good, um, well, you may remember the episode Body Swap. Yes. While, while on the subject. Yeah. There's some footage on YouTube of um, them performing body swap before they dubbed the opposite voices onto them. Oh, wow. And they're both trying to do an impression of the other one. Brilliant. And it's really good. So, obviously, Chris Barry's already an impressionist, so his accent was quite good. But, and he does, he like does all Charles. the audiobooks, and oh, when yeah, he does he the impressions, does the they sound really good. Yeah, I think yeah. his Craig Charles is probably one of the worst, but it, it's still <laughs> it's pretty good. It's too deep, that's the problem. Yeah. Like, he's got much different... But um, Craig Charles's impression of Chris Barry... <laughs> just sounds like a scouser so I recommend looking this up and watching it on YouTube and you'll see two scousers having a chat on some bunks <laughs> sounds great it's quite good I found it's just briefly diverting into the area of Schiffer and Stop's obsession with Red Dwarf yeah I found an episode of Red Dwarf that I'd never seen really yeah that seems impossible even worse an episode from series three that or even series two yeah which one it's called Parallel Universe yes um, and it's the end of... Is it Series 3, the very last one? Um, I think Parallel Universe is Series 2. It's the one where we first meet the female Holly, because yeah. she's the parallel version. Yeah. And I'd not, not seen the episode. All right, Hull. All right, Hill. <laughs> Hilly, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, I, saw, I found it on a film, and I, I was just churning my way through all of the episodes yeah. that they had. And this is live streaming. Uh, yeah. You know, what's it called? Streaming through the internet okay. rather than <laughs> waiting for the DVDs to arrive. I've never seen it before. Um, it's got the um, the opposite sex versions of Lister and Rimmer, right? That's yep. the one you're talking about. And and the opposite species version of Cap. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he's male, but yeah. he's a dog. He's a dog. That's good. Spoilers, yeah. but it's quite funny. Yeah, it's quite funny. Mm. Um, and then at the end, Lister gets pregnant. Yes. Um, lots of, <laughs> again, spoilers. <laughs> and that never gets mentioned again. And maybe in the scrolling text at the beginning of the next I series. I think that's how they deal with it, yeah. yeah. And also get rid of male Holly inexplicably replacing because he's fallen in love with female Holly and I don't know something yeah something happens yeah I'm quite jealous of you for finding an unexpected early episode of Red Dwarf that you'd never seen before I laughed a couple of times it was quite good (laughs) (laughs) it was enough how exciting okay next question Henry Cook lovely Henry who came to a story walk I did aka Um, Prehensile 
Um, yeah, so when I asked um, what we should talk about, he said we should talk about five and a quarter inch floppies or quarter inch tape, which is better. Five and a quarter inch floppies? Yeah, I mean, obviously, slightly more up to date. More satisfying as well, I think. But which is better for... It depends what you want to do. If you want to play some music... If you want to scratch it, if you want to, like, pull it backwards and forwards over an audio head, that's quite fun. Yeah, so Paul B. Davis that we had on an early episode of Shift Run Stop, who did the NES hacking, he used to do um, cassette jockeying championships in America. Yeah, he did. Which is exactly that. So if you want to do cassette jockeying... That would be tricky with a floppy. floppy, Yeah, floppy jockeying would be awesome. I'd like to see that. (laughs) Also, I'd like to see um, floppy discs in Walkman's. Like a Walkman that plays a floppy disk. A massive Walkman. Oh. It would be quite. It would be quite satisfying, though. It'd be chunky. You could put it in and then, and then uh, scratch it back and forth. But you'd only get about four seconds of audio on it. Yeah. <laughs> also, of course, you're, you're not supposed to keep pinging that thing. Across. No. <laughs> no, don't do that. So I don't know. Should you call it a draw? Yeah. <clears throat> Mike Trinder from Beta, yeah. one of the founders of Beta. He said we should talk about tanks, BBC Basic VDU codes, and snacks. He says the usual smiley face. That's nice of him. He knows us well. <laughs> he does. Beta newsletter, by the way. If you're not subscribing to it, you should. It's very funny. It's been going for yeah. like 10 years or something, Still but it's very fun. good. Yeah. 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 Actually, he says, following up, you should talk about what to put on the BT Tower now the dishes have all gone. Must be cool things, he insists. Yeah, I haven't even really noticed that. Have they gone? The BT Tower, yeah, is now just a clean whistle. Really? Yeah. What, up at the top where all the dishes were? I think all the dishes were gone, yeah. I think it's become wow. a different thing. I have a, I have a brilliant um, BT Tower fact, though. Tell me the BT Tower fact. I found out recently. Um, I believe it was opened by Billy Butlin, founder of Butlins. <laughs> <laughs> opened as in he cut the, the yeah. ribbon and let people in? Yeah. Wow. Well, as it, what other way would it would I mean? Like um, he was the, he, was he the created caretaker. it? He was <laughs> like he designed it and <laughs> built it? Uh, so he no. officiated, or he 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 was like the sort of it. celebrity, yeah, ribbon that cutter. A bit low I rank. think. I think. Why not um, Prince Andrew or something? Well, I think he was probably quite famous. He was probably like the Richard Branson of the sixties or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's brilliant. Um, but there's some good stuff on the Wikipedia page if you're interested. I <laughs> oh, that's where you're getting your so-called <laughs> facts from. But what else could you put on it? Um, you could put decorative satellite dishes that don't that don't really do anything but look exactly like satellite dishes. For a retro look. Could you make satellite dishes that that aren't functional? I think I could. Is it possible? I could use a bin lid. Are they just accidentally functional, though, because of their (laughs) shape and size? Or would they be unintentionally functional? Yeah. Uh, And you'd start accumulating lots of energy into the core of the BT Tower and then it it would become self-aware. Ghostbusters and you'd have like a massive explosion out of the top. Whoa! (laughs) Let's not do that. Maybe that's why they took the uh, satellite dishes off. Oh, shit, yeah. But yeah, those massive dishes like they have at science museums where you talk into one at one end of the room and then the other person stands at the other end and they can hear hear you. Have you been to Goonhilly? Yeah, it's amazing. That's good, isn't yeah, it? I yeah. bet they've got one of those there. They've got, well, now it's all bloody closed. And Is it? It's really sad, yeah. There, there's still a few satellite dishes. Right. It still looks kind of weird and post-apocalyptic. But there's no visitor centre. But you can't go in. <gasps> Instead of a visitor centre, there is a, um, a Segway centre where you can just go in a little room and hire a Segway and ride it around the car park. What? <laughs> <laughs> I know. You can hire a Segway and ride it around Goonhilly, so looking at the satellite dishes. No, and the, no just you can't around... even get in. Just around the car park, down the road. It's, it's in what? a... So Goonhilly, for listeners who don't know, is um, a really impressive BT-owned satellite dish station in mm. Cornwall. Yeah. Um, and it's in an amazing part of um, 
the like the Lizard Peninsula, I think, or around there. So it's all on so granite, which is why they've built it there, so that they don't oh, move around. Right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So okay. when you build your massive satellite dish that points across the Atlantic, you want it to stay very still. Yeah. So Coonhilly is a great place because all of that area all around the Lizard is just a massive lump of granite. Right, and also it's really flat. There's yeah. no hills or anything, yeah. so the you know the whatever the radio waves, <laughs> whatever it is, the technology, um, <laughs> the technology can travel. Yeah. And uh, there's been loads of stuff on the same. Now it's a, it's a nature reserve as well. It's an incredible habitat oh, yeah. for nature, and there's been loads of things on there for like. 100 years there's been like radar stations and Mm. during world war ii there were like women radar operators working from the little huts that you can still see there and stuff so yeah it's a good place to go if you like segways or nature but um but not so good if you want to look around the satellite dishes because you can't get that close to them anymore. i hope listeners got to go there before it shut down because yeah i'm not going to tell them everything that i learned I would say you should... Yeah, you're keeping that secret now. It's all gone forever. <laughs> I'm not forever. uploading anything into Wikipedia. <laughs> I think um, the only thing that I can really remember is um, granite. And the I've granite. just said that, that was bit. That's good. Yeah, no, you're very good. I'm Eben Upton, co-founder of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, and you're listening to Shift Run Stop. Has it been a surprise that there have been different sorts of people interested than you originally expected, or was, was the hobbyist user group always something that you'd been expecting to see? It seems like if the end goal is to get kids programming and children using cheap hardware that they're not afraid to mess around with and, and try some things out on, then providing it to schools and having having it available for people to use um, is really good. But it seems like your, your approach is actually to help build a community that gets you to that goal rather than doing all of the work yourselves. Is that is that a fair assessment of what you're up to? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I don't think we can claim that it was a plan. I don't think we can claim that this was a uh, this was a, a cunningly conceived master plan. You know, we were just trying to get this out to kids, uh, and we yeah we knew hobbyists would be interested because we know hobbyists have been interested in other products in this area like Beaglebot. The way it's evolved, we've evolved this story that what we're doing is you know that it's going to go out to hobbyists and they're going to help us build a, an attractive platform. But that's kind of an emergent that's an emergent business strategy, not not a not a not a master plan. Uh, what we, what really surprised us was the developing world stuff, and it shouldn't have done right. But there is enormous amount of interest in the developing world from people who see this as a way of turning their television Mm. into a computer which is what 1980s computers did 1980s computers were a a peripheral for your television you've already made this big investment in in probably the most expensive piece of consumer electronics that for a lot of people it still is your television is still the most expensive piece of consumer electronics that you buy and you've made this big investment and then a computer is a way a 1980s computer is a way of getting more value out of that investment Mm. this same dynamic I think is being played out in the developing world that there are a lot of places where particularly the BRIC countries where people have televisions but they don't have computers and so people see this as a way of of replicating that dynamic Mm. uh, but in a different country in a different decade Mm. and the nice thing is is a a standard definition television isn't just cheap it's free Mm. right that if you go down the tip or they even have negative value i will pay somebody a fiver a telly to take televisions out of my house because i have several of them and they're both all pretty good televisions they were expensive three four hundred pound pieces of hardware a decade ago uh, and they're now they're now worthless so so this is a way of getting some value in the developed world this is a way of getting some value out of that hardware that's currently sitting in people's attics um yeah the, the one thing that i kind of if we could have if we could have done done things differently i would have liked it if we'd had a way to get a vga to drive a VGA monitor because there are a lot of old VGA monitors that we can't currently get any value out of. Okay. Yeah, this this has uh, composite and HDMI, but there's no VGA output from this. So I, if if I if all I've got is an old monitor yes. with a VGA output, then I'm going to have to convert it. You're going to have to do something else. Yeah. Did you consider doing some sort of 
keyboard stroke joystick thing for this because I know I know that you've probably seen the Fignition Julian Skidmore's mm. creation, Indeed. which is also a it's a kit actually. It's more mm. of a DIY thing, yeah. um, and it's uh, a yeah. Fignition. Fignition is great. <laughs> it's great fun, but it's it's also got quite a high barrier to entry in that you need to do choral mm. key keyboards with six switches or eight switches. Really? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's it. quite it's fa- fairly oh, hard work. It's so easy <laughs> to like a, a PS2. He he should fix that because a PS2 keyboard interface is actually a very simple thing to build. So. <laughs> Uh, he should fix that. Uh, but no, I mean, things like Fignition are... I mean, Fignition is kind of very much where we came from. Right? Mm. The, the earliest versions of this that we tried to build were using Atmel, mm. um, using Atmel chips like the Arduino and like the Fignition. Um, and, yeah, we it was really actually nice to see a fully... When I first saw Fignition, it was really nice to see a fully realised version of the, you know, 8-bit microcomputer using an Atmel mm. uh, that, I'd, that I'd been thinking about and that I'd never had the, the commitment to actually finish. Um, so, so yeah. Um, but you never kind of tried to design a t- tiny keyboard or anything to... Um, <laughs> the one that we did think about doing was, when we first demoed this, it was a, in a USB key stick format. Mm. And actually, if you look at the device, you can see that the, the interesting stuff is actually confined to a relatively <laughs> small area mm. of the board, that most of the area of the board is about giving it periphery for connectors. Mm. So you've got this incredibly complicated stuff in here under the CPU and a little bit of complicated stuff under the network adapter but the rest of it is basically green board mm. so you can you can do a, a USB key stick variant of this if you are prepared to throw away interfaces and one, one thing we did want to do was to put that inside a mouse and just like you can get it just like you can get an Atari 2600 joystick um, with all uh, with, with 2600 games we wanted to do a mouse that had Quake three in it <laughs> and then just have a mouse that had a battery inside and, a, and an HDMI cable coming out and you just oh. plug it into your television and start playing Quake 3 and you can put a wireless adapter in there as well and it would just have been do it would have been perfect That'd be better. yeah we should do that absolutely <laughs> it's much better than this um, but yeah that was the that was the we thought that would make a really good trade show demo actually because this is mm. a I mean this uses a, a chip from Broadcom who are my mm. employers in my day job it's, it's, a, it's a really nice little chip and, and yeah we thought that the mouse would be a good trade show demo but mm. we never got around to it so, how do Broadcom feel about this? I, I think they feel I think they feel good about it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I assume they feel good about it. Um, no, I mean, Broadcom have, have been very supportive yeah. of us. Um, you know, they, they um, Broadcom has a uh, we, there's a thing called the Broadcom Foundation. In fact, which is um, uh, it's a charitable foundation uh, set up by Broadcom that actually has very very similar aims to the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Right? Mm. They they're uh, they're there to promote STEM. Um, to pr- promote STEM subjects, science, technology, mm. engineering, mathematics. Um, so yeah, you know, this is something that I think other people involved with Broadcom have had a long-standing commitment to, and uh, it's kind of actually meshed up quite well with what uh, with what we've with what we've been doing. So to put that question with the tinfoil hat on, you've mentioned already you work for Broadcom, and some people wearing their tinfoil hats would um, would question whether um, Broadcom actually stands to do very well out of this. So not only are they getting some great great publicity, mm. um, they're getting a whole batch of um, people using the hardware that might not previously have done. Um, you're exclusively using Broadcom hardware in this, and that's something which definitely sort of raises eyebrows. Now, it sounds like their goals and the goals of the foundation are different, and there's a kind of a paper wall between you. Yeah. Do you find that people actually are, are maybe a bit cautious about, about Raspberry Pi because of that? Yeah, I think there's been a... I've seen a suspicion expressed that this is in some way a Broadcom marketing stunt or, or um, yeah, some sort of strategic marketing activity. It really isn't. Mm. Um, and Broadcom, the relationship with Broadcom is Broadcom are our silicon vendor. Mm. Uh, they also, as a favour to me, built the first 50 prototype units. We have a PCB design, uh, 
a, a service, an internal service, and we were able to we were allowed to use that mm. service. So, so yeah, when I say Broadcom have been very helpful, that's the way they've been helpful. Mm. Uh, this isn't something. There is no Broadcom money in this project, for mm. example, would be a, a one. The obvious, the obvious assumption would be, hey, we're getting a bung from Broadcom to use the chip. I don't know another chip we could have used. Mm. I don't know another chip we could have used to hit the price and performance point. In this in this device, um, you know, we're not obviously we're not using exclusively Broadcom Silicon. We do use a, um, a device from SMSC. Well, our, our network our network is provided. Although Broadcom is, I think, probably the world's largest provider of network chips. Uh, our network chip comes from a company called SMSC because it was the right chip for the device. So, uh. the question that always seems to be posed to you at events is: uh, Is it going to be open source? Is the hardware open? And Obviously, the, the hardware that you're using and the Broadcom chip that's at the centre of it is proprietary. Yeah. It seems like in February you were able to get a sort of abbreviated data sheet mm-hmm. for that component, yeah. um, which is a lot more than most people expected. Yeah. Um, do you think there's still more ground to be gained there? And tell me about the balance between openness, price and performance and the trade-off that you've, that you've had yeah. to make there. Yeah. I think no AP vendors publish all of the data about their chips. I think that's got about the same level of detail that you can get openly from other AP platforms. So I think we're kind of there. I think we've hit the bar. I think that that bar could conceivably be higher, although I think that probably the stuff that's missing from it, things like details about how the 3D accelerator works, is more of kind of kind of geeking out interest than it is practical interest, right, in that we, we don't expect anyone to write a, a, a new 3D driver for this. We expect people to use our 3D drivers because they took us years to write. And there, you know, an OpenGLES driver is a, is a really complicated piece of software. So I, I, I wouldn't expect much more in the way of hardware openness. Um, the board design for Raspberry Pi is not currently open hardware in the way that a number of other boards in this area are. That's simply because a number of the chips on this device are not available in distribution. So if I wanted to clone this and make my own version of it and actually treat it as a platform mm-hmm. rather than a nice bit of cheap kit, yeah. I wouldn't be able to do that, not only because the board isn't published, but because nobody else can buy the chips there, apart from there, you. There are, there are components on this board which are not available in in distribution. We sort of feel that if we release the board designs before the chips are generally available, then the focus of attention will turn onto the chip vendors, and we like our chip vendors. Uh, you know, <laughs> you we, work for them. <laughs> I, work, I work for one of them. So, you know, we don't want to create, we don't want to do this kind of pointless open hardware exercise that doesn't do anything other than, you know, raise people's hopes and then dash them. Mm. So at the point where the chips are, are publicly available, we would release the, the hardware designs. So have you had to make choices in the architecture of, of this bit of hardware where you've known that the goal is making kids better at programming and more able to develop things and yet you were able you know with your BBC you were able to read the spec and you were able to write a mouse driver are there things realistically are there things that people will want to do with this bit of hardware that they won't be able to and is that something you wrestle with I would love it if people could write their own 3D driver for it but realistically, we're, we're, realistically, it's just not something we... You know, that kind of really deep access to the hardware... Yeah, I would love it if... Because I, I was involved in the, the hardware team that designed the 3D core in here, and I would love to have my work out in public. Mm-hmm. However, I think there are quite compelling reasons not to, not to, not to push out in public. Uh, I don't want to stray into talking as a Broadcom employee, sure. but I can certainly see reasons why there would be no, there'd be no compelling commercial advantage to releasing that level of information and really you can't expect companies to do stuff unless there's compelling commercial mm-hmm. advantage. So what, what sort of things could kids do? Like plugging it in out of the box as you were saying before that you know one of the great appealing things about the BBC Micro and other uh, machines of that era is that you could immediately get going you could do something, you could make something happen mm. um, how much 
knowledge do kids have to have before they can make anything happen? Well, um, I mean, the example from, I think, from Rory's piece on the BBC was we took some kids and we showed them how to write Snake. Mm. And it took, like, ten minutes to get from a standing start to the making changes to mm. the program and ha- getting results. And those are simple changes, like making the snake a different colour. Mm. The nice thing about Python is you can edit a Python program if you can't program in Python. Mm. It's very English-like, and therefore you can you can go and look in there, and if it says, you have a thing that says something.green, mm. and you change that to something.blue, <laughs> yeah, it works. Um, I still have this idea that children might type programs in out of listing, yes. but I suspect that's not going to happen. What will happen is one child will do that and put it on the web, and then everyone else will download it. <laughs> but there's something about typing it in that causes it to go through your mm. go from your eyes, through your brain, into your fingers, and it sort of feels like that's better in some way. Mm. But I heard that Hunter yeah. S. Thompson his first book that he wrote he typed was actually um, it was either The Great Great Gatsby or some other sort of great American novel and he typed it out just to get a feel for what it is like to write a novel that is is incredibly excellent (laughs) Yeah, one thing we'd really like to do is I would love to go and find there's a lot of abandonware out there right Mm. there's a lot of we we are going to run emulators on this I've seen a variety of emulators on this device Andy Andy had a Spectrum emulator on it and I would love to get some source for some classic games Mm. and, and have it out there for people to type in um, you know, I don't know, a snapper for the BBC Micro or something. You know, just, just, just very simple stuff. So, so anyway, I, I found that I found that that there's a ten minute barrier, and that's the really tragic thing. That even on a PC, actually, there's only a ten minute barrier, and no mm. one ever. It's like living ten minutes from a from an awesome playground, and nobody ever goes to the playground because it's mm. ten minutes away. And, and once you're once you're there, there's a smooth. There is actually still the smooth curve still exists. The smooth curve that starts with print hello world and ends with being a technical director of Broadcom, say, which has been, which has been my, my experience of, yeah. using, of using computers, yeah. uh, is a, a completely smooth curve with no steps on it at all. Mm. Uh, and that's, that curve still exists, but, but it, it's, got a step at the, it's got a step at the front, which it didn't mm. used to have. And that's all we're trying to do. I think if we thought we were trying to do something difficult, if we thought, we were, if we thought kids, kids didn't want to program or that programming was hard or that the government didn't want kids to program, then we would be doomed. The thing that gives us hope is that what we're trying to do is a very, very simple thing. Mm. That all we're trying to do is uh, get people over this one little step. It's a, it's a simple thing we're trying to do. Have you been watching Room 101? I've not seen it. They've re- redone it, haven't they? It's been yeah. Re- re- it's been reimagined. Imagined, restarted. Rebooted. What would you put in Room 101? Oh, I would put shopping. Right. Can I do that? Yeah. What about shopping in the physical world? <laughs> right. Because I don't mind shopping as long as it's on Amazon. Oh, uh, it's going to say it's, like, it, it's in Second Life. Shop's in Second <laughs> Shop, Life. Shop's in Second That's Life are different. Shopping on Ocado is all right. Yeah. And shopping on Amazon is great. Apart from that, I don't think shopping should be allowed. And certainly shopping in supermarkets for an hour and a half. Yeah. An hour and a half? How how much stuff do you get? I live quite near a massive Sainsbury's. Right. And so if we do a big shop, we'll do a big shop. And I hate it, honestly. It makes my eyes glaze over and my Mm. brain shut down. Mm. I would rather do nearly anything, actually. I think, because I live near a massive Tesco's, like Mm. literally the biggest Tesco's you've ever seen. I Um, bet it's not as big as my massive Sainsbury's. Oh, God, we have to have... How can we judge this? (laughs) Well, maybe we should count the aisles. Okay. Because that's fair, isn't it? But the aisles might not be... They might just be loads of short ones. <laughs> <laughs> you live next to the world's most compressed Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> Tesco for 
<laughs> tiny people. No, I mean, if, if I don't think that's necessarily a very accurate way of judging how big... You don't think the number of aisles is a good indicator of the size of your, sa- your supermarket? No, maybe you measure it by how obscure the thing they sell is. Uh, what about if we count the number of different sorts of a specific thing? Like, yeah. how many different sorts of ketchup are there? Ketchup? There's only one kind of ketchup. Well, the, you must live next to a corner shop, because <laughs> I reckon I've got about 20 foot of ketchup in my massive Sainsbury's. <laughs> ketchup! <laughs> 20 ketchup linear is, feet. Surely ketchup is a very specific product. Well, I, I picked one at random, but I picked ketchup. I know, Would you like but to pick a different surely one? ketchup is just, is just one thing. Honestly, tomato ketchup comes in a variety of Are we talking different... about, like, different sizes of the red product called Heinz <laughs> tomato ketchup? Honestly, other people talking? make it too. This is my point. There okay, are... right, so all or, the Or we could mates. say olives. I mean, maybe Sainsbury's has an unfair advantage with olives, but, mm. you know, you, you pick one. I think we should choose a different product. This is... But don't they group them? Won't this be easy? You find right. the bit with the ketchup, and then you stand back, and you look at all the other ones that you don't normally buy, and then you oh. take a photo of that. And well, then you put it on Instagram, okay, damn so you. Maybe there's, yeah. So maybe there's another way. Maybe we could do it by number of tills. That's good, as long as I'm allowed to count all of the self-service tills yeah. as well. Yeah, and as long as I am as well. Oh, dear. Has <laughs> um, yours gone upstairs? Upstairs. No, it doesn't. So if you count the number oh. of floors, then you're winning. Does it have uh, clothes? Mm, yeah, it's got some clothes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I think my Tesco's is bigger. I've just got a feeling. Um... It's also um, next to the Big Brother house, like over the other side of the wall, is the garden of the Big Brother house. Oh, wow. Well, that's handy. When they run short of ketchup, they can pop out and... Is, is, that, is that how it works? Maybe. Well, I was thinking um, they should be allowed access to that Tesco, shouldn't they, as part yeah, of the thing. You're allowed good. to stay in this house and go to Tesco's. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, but, uh, oh, yeah, because when the guy from the Tower of Towers of London... He was a pop star in a group called the Towers of London, and he was he was a bit of a twat. But he escaped from Big Brother House by climbing over that wall. And I always think of him ending Jack up D. in Tesco's car park. No, a different. It was a different <laughs> Jack D. Where'd that come from? No, he won. Oh, I think. I thought he escaped. Came Somebody second. escaped that year. Um, I don't know. It happens quite a lot. But <laughs> how do they get out though? I mean, they surely there aren't just unlocked doors that you can walk through. They shin over the fence. Oh. Like, if they can really put the effort in. Right, climb just stuff. climb over. Yeah. Have you ever done it in reverse? I know, it's quite tempting. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you could... I always think you could fly a, a sort of remote-controlled <gasps> plane or something over. Of course you could. Um, quite without, you know... Because they can't, like, shoot you or anything. It's not like a military <laughs> compound. <laughs> and even if they could, if you get a really good one, you could fly it, you could fly it from a great distance. You could get one of those helicopters with a camera. With a camera. And then fly it over the garden. Oh, in my fact, God. I'm surprised that. that tabloids aren't doing that already. Yes, let's do that. I want one now. Thing for I do have a very small helicopter, remote Don't control you, is helicopter. Is this what you were sent as part of a blogger outreach thing? Yeah, well, you say blogger outreach, they probably say spam PR. Right. But I got an email saying, would you like to review this toy? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> Send me a review copy. Review I'll review really it. really harshly? <laughs> oh, I wanted to, but actually it was quite good, so I reviewed oh. it fairly, which right. seemed, seemed fair. Um, I did the same thing with a remote control car as well. If anyone's listening and wants to send me toys, I'll gladly review them. <laughs> I won't say they're good unless they're good. I mean, I will review it fairly. I, I'll say they're good, whatever they're like, so <laughs> send me... Speaking of which, actually, this segues oh, nicely. We've got some toys here. Talking of segues. Um, 
Yes, so you'll remember Carl, who um, possibly from our Christmas episode sent us an e-Christmas card of the Starship Enterprise. He regularly emails me with iPlayer downloads that may be of interest to me that week. Oh, that's cool. Um, it's like a little personalisation service. Yeah. In human form. Yeah. Oh, nice chat. Um, Why doesn't he do this for me then? So, well, I don't know, you're a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly one of us is attractive to him. Um, but, you know, he sent, he sent us both a Christmas card and he sent us both um, a toy that he's... He went to the Sci-Fi London Festival or something. Okay. Um, sorry, I can't remember exactly what it's called. And um, picked us up a load of stuff, including some things which I've possibly taken out already. Ooh. One of them was um, a star chart thing. And it also this um, flyer came in the, the bag of things from Carl. Thanks, Carl. It uh, appears to be some sort of... Um, it's called the ultimate interactive experience for Starship, Star Trek Nemesis. Each card takes you to a different destination. And... The, there isn't a card here, but they appear to be little sort of SIM cards, smart flash. And you slide them into a slider, put them in a reader. And it 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 says it's your personal pass to the Star Trek universe. That's handy. Um, I, I don't know how literally to take that. Yeah. Like, what, what is this experience? Well, you've always wanted to, to go into the Star Trek universe, <laughs> and now all you need know, is a smart card. I don't know if I wanted to go into the Star Trek Nemesis universe. What's that? It's well, Star Trek Nemesis is a film, isn't it, with um, Tom Hardy in it as the baddie. Does it have whales in it? Um, no, I've it's, not seen it's it. It's one of the more new ones. <laughs> Does it have whales in it? Only one of them has whales in it. It's the one I've seen. Um, it's a good I've one. seen the new one. Is it called oh, Star yeah. Trek? Um, I'm going to say it's the newest one. I've seen that I know, one. Yeah, the one with the other guy playing Young Kirk. Yeah, it's got Young Kirk in it. And the guy from Heroes oh. as Spock. Um, the one Silo who plays Silo, yeah. yeah. I've seen that one, and I've seen the one with the whales. Right. Which I'm told that Star Trek fans get really annoyed when you call them the one with the whales. <laughs> with the so whales starring Dr. Possible. Spock. <laughs> <laughs> they like it when you say Dr. Spock. <laughs> and um, Mr. Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I don't, I don't fully understand what that is, and no. I'm too tired to work it out. But we also have, thank you, this is the absolute cherry on the cake. Thanks, Carl. Um, we each have a Sega Mega Drive portable video game player. Oh my goodness. Now, it's not actually as portable as you think. Right. Because you need to also port a TV. If you've got a portable television, it's quite portable then. And it appears to be a pink one and a sort of black and red one. So Which I, one do you want? I think I'm, I'm going to have to have the pink one. That sounds me? fair, because you're a girl. But right. I'm, um, I'm actually slightly stunned. That, that So this is one of those um, games that you plug into your television? Yeah. Uh, through a SCART cable thing, yeah. composite video and SCART, and and it's got uh, so mine. I'm now calling this one mine. Yeah. has got Streets of Rage and maybe Sonic and Knuckles on it. If you open it, you'll <gasps> see. Yeah, it's got it's, loads of games on it. Got absolutely loads of games on it. It's got Columns, Virtua Fighter Two, which is a Genesis have game. Have, Streets of Rage Three. I've got twenty games on mine. Oh, you win. <laughs> Sonic and Knuckles. How many of those do you remember? Golden Axe 2. I'm reading only the ones I remember. Streets of Rage, Golden Axe 2. Mm. Streets of Rage 3. They've missed out Streets of Rage 2. Um, this is great. And what's, what's, uh, what's in your list? I is think it the I've same? I've probably got the same, but I've probably got two, two bonus ones on that. Um, I have the original Golden Axe. None of your Golden Axe 2 bollocks. Wow. Uh, this which is I amazing. Remember from being a child. I've got Echo Jr. And Echo, the dolphin one. Echo the dolphin. Yeah. Loving Echo so the dolphin. This is a, a, excellent. And I'm, one of the things I'm most excited is this um, this cable that you get with it, which is one of those like audio video cable things that you plug in the telly, and the little SCART converter thing. I'm 
genuinely so touched. I don't know if he paid for these or what, but well, I, I mean, Carl, it's, it's extraordinary. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for thinking of us with your retro toys. That's very thoughtful of you. Um, also, it takes... comes in a box with Velcro <coughs> stickers. Will we start with sweet or savoury? Uh, savoury. Yeah. These are llamas. It's a, it's a large kind of oversized packet of crisps. Um, although they're not crisps, they're llamas. Whole wheat baked you like bites. like a llama? Mm. All right. Mm. Normally I'm vegetarian, but I'll, I'll eat these. Oh, <laughs> well, don't worry. As according to the packaging, no llamas were harmed in the making of these snacks. <laughs> so it's like Actually, biscuit. we should have we should have paired this with the um, club mate because llamas and yerba mate are both South American. Well, yeah, you can have some more. We've still got some. <laughs> Would you like Especially some? Especially if you went to someone's <laughs> South American themed party and they gave you some of that and like one of these <laughs> llama, llama biscuits. It's quite a nice little biscuit. That's how we do it these days. Mm-hmm. It's very tasty. And they're very strong, so they could mm. almost co- cover the hideous flavour of Cup Club Mate, I think. Mm. Where'd you get these, Lee? I think I got these from Tesco. Uh, there, there are a variety of different flavours, none of which I thought to uh, note down. What flavour is this? Do you know? This one is barbecue flavour. Just general barbecue. No, special barbecue llama sauce. barbecue. You... <laughs> and are you familiar with Pocky? Yeah. Yes. The, uh, the Japanese, I guess, biscuit sticks. I think of them as being chocolate-dipped biscuit sticks. Oh, these Would are that be fair? chocolate because these ones are blueberry. And they come in a sort of cigarette packet, want a better phrase. Yeah, I, I've often thought jumbo that one. these could be like another mm. alternative currency in lockdown situations mm. whether it's like um, prisons like... mental wards or mm. sm- schools <laughs> in prisons they could build chips out of them and stuff <laughs> <laughs> you could trade they had them enough of them yeah to non-smokers mm, exactly <laughs> maybe do... it's a way of getting over smoking <laughs> I've always known them as Pocky when I was in France uh, somebody had asked me if I was familiar with Mikado she proceeded to explain what Mikado was mm. and I was like well no I've, I've never it's heard of this brand. and it turns out that no Mikado is Pocky huh. it's just what they call Pocky in France and by extension now in the UK oh my god I've seen both Pocky and Mikado on the shelves at the same time so mm. it's it's not really quite clear what's going on but for added confusion this is Mikado with Dame the German oh. name for dime bars wow. This must be a rare item, this. This is, sell it to a this is globalization <laughs> run amok. This is, <laughs> right this is, this is confusing localization. You've, you've, you've confused me in, in two different ways. <laughs> well, this is a conventional chocolate pocky. Chocolate pocky, but, but with, a with chunky, uh, chunky bits of dime bar. Oh, is that what those lumps are? This is, uh, oh, yeah. Mm. This is much better than the bl- blueberry one. Yeah, it's really nice. Mm. Yeah, it's like somebody's melted a bunch of dime bars and then dipped... Uh, breadsticks. And the blueberry ones from people who think they're healthy, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I just can't imagine who that's for. I'm, I'm thinking people who like a bit of variety. I pregnant expect. women. One of your five day. Are we going to eat the peeps? Let's go for it. Okay, tell um, us about peeps. I am skipping the peeps because I am a vegetarian and they are made of bones. Really? Yes. Yeah. So these came from a cyber candy, I think. Um, Did you go to the cyber are... candy in the, uh, in, in the box park? 
I don't know what that is. It's it's a, it's a, like a, a small shopping area oh. made entirely out of um, shipping containers. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Where else? Well, of course it's in Shoreditch, of course. Uh, <laughs> it sounds quite sweet. post-apocalyptic. Sweet shops are having a bit of a revival, I think, because when I walked down Oxford Street earlier today, there were loads of just sort of dedicated sweet shops, that almost exactly like cyber candy, but called different things. Oh, oh look, they're all stuck so together. The most amusing thing with peeps in the US is finding interesting ways to kind of mangle them and kill them. And um, if you put these in the microwave, they'll just start growing. <laughs> they'll just get absolutely tremendously huge. Where, where do these come from then? I'm not familiar with the peeps. They're just a holiday standard in America. They've just been around forever. They're nominally marshmallowish. They're, they're yeah, certainly marshmallow-like. Yeah. Uh-huh. They are like a string of sort of squirted marshmallow chicks um, all staring blankly up at you in a long cardboard box, and they're called Peeps Marshmallow Chicks. These ones are green, like a very vivid kind of neon um, highlighter pen green. But it is a green coating. It's not green all the way through the no. marshmallow. So they've obviously been sprayed with green sugar. Yeah, they're, other colours as well. Most iconically, they're yellow. Mm. They do look a bit like uh, Russell T. Davis era Doctor Who bad guys. Yeah, they do. I've been looking at them for a while and I can't honestly see a, a chick in yeah, it. There's, there's the little beak and oh. here's the little eyes. I see. So the little. Um, These are a little bit the, more smushed down than they normally it's like are. It's like a cross between a chick a and a more. pair of slippers. <laughs> yes. yes. That's exactly right. They look very like, they, they so look very like the slippers. The, the beak is formed by <laughs> a sort of marshmallow extrusion mm-hmm. where it's been. Uh, <laughs> It's been piped into formation, and then uh, the little it's sphincter like has closed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and then basically, your vision there of a closing sphincter <laughs> suddenly America, has really, wetted my appetite. <laughs> we really like our food extruded. <laughs> I've heard that, and it is just 100% sugar. I mean, there can't be mm. any any other. Well, no, there's there's also uh, preservatives, <laughs> and, coloring, um, and ground up bone meal in order to. Mm. Get it to stand up in this lovely chick-like shape, <laughs> um, which is. Uh, also, can I why ask? You, I won't have it. Quinn, while you're here, can I ask you? It does say that this is one serving on the back, and this is <laughs> the whole thing. This is five joined together, side to side, like Siamese chicks. <laughs> yeah. um, is, would you normally eat just one, or would you have like a row each <laughs> in, like a, in some kind of like hot normally dog bun? You start to eat them. In my experience, you normally start to eat them and immediately break down giggling and throw them in the microwave. (laughs) There's a bunch of recipes for integrating peeps into other things, like cakes and so on and so forth. Um, Okay. I don't believe people actually eat them for the most part. (laughs) I think they're kind of a novelty item. (laughs) So so for the benefit of Americans who who haven't eaten a peep for some reason, just don't bother, I think. Yeah. That's the takeaway message. It's your weird... American candy that the world will never understand. No, it's it's um, everybody does eat peeps at some point or another, but as, um, a, as an initiation, <laughs> it's kind of a hazing like... ritual for America. Yeah. <laughs> part of getting a visa. <laughs> I feel like, and I don't know why, but I feel like they're often combined with a lot of beer. Mm. Right, that would be a very bad combination, I think, because <laughs> well, they're exceptionally sweet, yeah, being yeah. formed entirely of sugar and marshmallow, <laughs> and uh, and bone, as you say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So combining that with beer, to me, seems like a very bad idea indeed. Both, well, both in terms of the foamy consistency of what's going on inside your gullet, but also it's going to make the beer taste very bitter and sour because you're, you're offsetting that against an incredibly sweet flavour. I'm not saying it's a good idea. No. <laughs> we, we also play a lot of... I, I suspect that at this time of year they're combined with beer pong and losing bets. 
Oh, so. okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, eat, eat a, a peeps or inhale a peeps up your nose or <laughs> so, some other sort of forfeit that might be required. <laughs> I'm going to say you guys can't do any more peeps stuff until you've taken one of these guys and seen what happens when you throw it in the microwave. Because okay. that's the real American experience. Have you got a microwave? Right there? I do have a microwave. You, do you have one? No, I don't. Oh, well, so I'll, I'll gladly take one home and microwave it. Yeah, definitely. Put your, um, put your sound recorder in the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put a camera in there with it as well. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Brilliant. I look forward to this. <laughs> so, two peeps going in the microwave. Full power. 60 seconds. Oh my goodness, look at that. <gasps> <laughs> you look quite cute. How important do you think it is for people to be able to see the workings? Because what you're supplying here is is really like a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> there's no case. <laughs> yes, uh, no, there's no case. Board. It genuinely is just a circuit board with some uh, some components. So, so it. <laughs> um, surprisingly important. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the kids really loved it. We yeah. didn't take it into for a long time. We didn't take it into. Uh, we didn't take it. We didn't put it in front of kids. I think because we were scared. And the first time we put it in front of kids was the week before launch with Rory Catherine Jones at the school in Cambridge. And this was this was our experience of right of, of doing Snake with uh, with, mm. with the kids. Um, and they lo- they really liked the look and feel. They really liked being able to see this bad PCB and mm. see what's inside it and see that yeah, actually that's a recognisably modern computer. And you can look at it and you can say processor, mm. network adapter, RAM. Um, and, and that there's just nothing to it. And of course, it's a bit of a fraud, really, because there's an enormous amount of complexity embedded in. There's you know a hundred man years or something of, of engineering effort embedded in the in the, in the microprocessor, uh, because it's not just a microprocessor; it's a it's a big SOC um, system on a chip. Yes. For anyone following along at home. Um, so, but but you know, it, it, you can point to it and say that's the thing that does the processing. That's the thing that stores mm-hmm. the data. That's the thing that does the network. Um, and so, so one of the nice things about our recent CE conformance experience was it looks like we'd thought that we would have to case it in order to be CE conformant. We've discovered we can be CE conformant just in a bare board configuration. Mm. Um, and what that means is we can put it in a clear case. So we are going to put it in a case to send it to schools, but we can make it a clear plastic case so people can at least still see what's going on inside mm. and just pop the top off and it'll still be conformant with the top off mm. rather than having to say, oh, and make sure that you put the top back on before you plug it in or it'll radiate mm. vast amounts of EM. So... Uh, so that, that was really that was that was extremely good news. We were talking earlier about you know the the Mega Drive and the mm. Super Nintendo and how these things you want to play games on and even if you could program for them they do one thing. Mm. This is really no different to a PC. It runs Linux, but is there something about the fact that it's not only small and cheap and I don't need to worry about breaking it, but also that its guts are exposed and you can see what's going on? I mean, I'm really interested in your take on what the affordances of something which will make kids program for it. I think we're still learning. Uh, so, so this is a hypothesis, right? That if you make computers very cheap uh, and you stick an operating system on them which comes bundled with a bunch of tools, we will get more programmers. Mm-hmm. It's a hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I still to this day have no idea if it's true. Um, it could be we'll find out in two years' time that we, sold, we only sold these to 35-year-olds. Mm. Um, at which point we'll, that will have been still an awesome experience and, and stuff but we won't actually have achieved the goal of the foundation so especially if they, they only run, run um, spectrum emulators absolutely so that that will have been so that was all people wanted I will, I, and I will have but I will have learned something about the world and I will have learned it at relatively little cost in money although substantial cost in, in blood sweat and tears but um, 
it, it'll be interesting. I think we're going to get our thousand engineers. I think a thousand engineers a year is a modest goal, and I think we'll get that. I hope, I very much hope it'll have a transformative impact on, on industry, and I think it'll have a transformative impact on the lives of a thousand kids. It's really easy to get hung up on the whole national economic competitiveness thing because we are screwed if we don't come up with a way to get more engineers as a country. Um, but I think the really important thing for me is, is I think what we said earlier on, which was uh, I don't understand why everyone doesn't want to be an engineer. Mm. You get paid money to play with toys. Good money mm. to, to play with toys at a desk. You don't have to go outside in the cold. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic job. If a thousand more people have an opportunity to do that instead of whatever, whatever other thing they would have been doing, then I think that's a good thing for those thousand people. It's really exciting seeing the interest in it, and I, I can only say that I wish you enormous luck in the next couple of years seeing whether this hypothesis uh, pans out. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on the show. been listening to Shift Run Stop, shiftrunstop.co.uk.